0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Greg Braden. For over 20 years, Greg has been a leading authority on ancient prophecies, sacred sites, and lost spiritual practices. He's the author of the books Fractal Time, Awakening to Zero Point, Walking Between the Worlds, and The Isaiah Effect. Coming from Sounds True beginning on November 3rd, Greg Braden will be hosting a three part online event series called Exploring Fractal Time, Choice Point 2012. In this episode, Greg and I spoke about cycles of time, the energy that's at the center of the Milky Way, and what we can learn from ancient cultures about what he calls choosing with our hearts. Here's my conversation with Greg Braden. I wanted to begin, Greg, by talking to you about fractal time. What is fractal time, and how did you come up with that phrase, that concept?
1: Well, well, those are two very different questions. (laughs) So I'll I'll begin just with a a little background on fractal time. Uh, For the bulk of my adult life, I've spent time with indigenous cultures and traditions uh, throughout the world. And one of the the really profound uh, understandings that I've gleaned from my time with these people, ranging from the Andes mountains of Bolivia and Peru to the monasteries of Tibet and the mountains of Egypt and India and Nepal and, and all places in between, is that almost universally, the ancient people of this world see our lives and our planet in terms of cycles, cyclic time. Uh, beginnings and endings that lead to new beginnings. Uh, And for many Westerners uh, in our modern technological kind of left brain uh, society as as it is formed today, what I found is this is a very different way for them to see the world, that we're conditioned through our our family thinking, uh, most of us, through our society, certainly through our educational system to think in in terms of uh, of linear experiences. Uh, Civilization, for example. Uh, When I was in school back in the 60s, I I was taught that civilization began with primitive uh, communities that gradually advanced over a long period of time to steel skyscrapers that we see today. Uh, A linear progression. And when we talk about history, in our classrooms today, even even right now, our listeners who have children in school are being taught that civilization is about 5,000 years old. Well, while that may be true for this civilization, what the archaeological record is beginning to show that there were civilizations that predate that 5,000 years, advanced civilizations, and it is causing problems in terms of uh, historical timelines and chronology, and it's difficult to explain. Uh, until we allow for the possibility of cycles and the cyclic existence that uh, so many other cultures talk about. Uh, and and the bottom line for me is that civilizations appear to have existed in the past. Humans certainly have had understandings in the past that have, have been forgotten and we are now rediscovering through the language of science. And for me, Tammy, the value of embracing this cyclic view of the world is that it really helps us to understand and, and give meaning to the, the changes that we see happening in our world today. So almost universally, our, our, the best minds of our time today suggest that we are, are living uh, a time of crisis, uh, multiple crises, uh, all converging in this narrow window of time between about 1980 and, and 2016. And they talk about crises of climate and economy and crises of war and food shortages and water shortages and, you know, the things that we all know are, are breaking down very quickly today. And when we look at all of those things converging in this narrow window of time, uh, the question comes up as to why. Why would all of these things be breaking down in such a narrow window of time? And it doesn't make a lot of sense until we think of the world in terms of cycles, And when we begin to adopt the cyclic view, then we know that whatever's happening today has probably happened in the past. And if we know where to look, then uh, it gives us a good insight into realistically what has happened in the past and what we can expect uh, in terms of of physical changes on the earth, what we can expect in terms of the way people respond to those changes. So it's this cyclic nature of, of life and civilization in the universe that led to my exploration uh, of cycles of time. And, uh, and this is where the fractals come in. In, in nature, what we see are, are patterns that repeat themselves on different scales of magnitude again and again and again. For example, the, the pattern of an atom with little electrons orbiting around a nucleus looks a whole lot like moons orbiting around a, a planet uh, which looks a whole lot like planets orbiting around the sun, very, very similar patterns, but obviously they're different in scale. So we say that the the atom is a fractal pattern of uh, of the solar system, for example. So the same pattern, uh, different scale and and the beauty of understanding fractals is if we know how the pattern works on one level it gives us tremendous insight into how that pattern works in other levels. So if if we understand what keeps electrons orbiting around the nucleus, for example, it gives us insight into what keeps planets orbiting around the sun. So if, if that idea makes sense, then what I've done in the book Fractal Time is applied the idea of fractals to cycles of time. If we can understand the patterns from the past, the smaller patterns, uh, of of cycles of time in the past, it gives us insight into our understanding of what we can expect when those big patterns repeat in the present and in the future. So it's a long answer to a short question. No, 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 it's, it's very, very good. It gives us a lot to tie into as, as we go through our program today.
0: Yeah, very good. What it brings up for me is how do you take into account in fractal time evolution forward progress. A sense of linearity, which, of course, each one of us can feel in our own life, and we can feel sure. in terms of the stream of history?
1: Well, that's a great question. It's a question I had to ask myself as, uh, as I was developing these ideas. Uh, and I, I just like to say the idea of cycles of time is acknowledged and embraced now, not only by indigenous traditions, but, uh, but modern science and peer-reviewed journals that understand the role of cycles. Uh, so that is an accepted principle, and the, the idea of repeating patterns in nature and the role of fractals uh, is now accepted in peer-reviewed scientific and technical journals. So cycles and fractals are both accepted in mainstream science. The leap uh, that the book Fractal Time takes is marrying these two natural patterns into a greater understanding that, w- that gives meaning. Uh, to our lives uh, personally as well as collectively locally as well as globally and we can talk about what that means in the program and to understand all of that what i had to do was draw upon uh, my background in the earth sciences and the space sciences and mathematics and physics and biology and bring all of those to bear upon this uh, this understanding and the bottom line is that nature appears to be a very simple process and the patterns of nature Appear to be very simple patterns. We can make them complex, uh, and we can use complex language and complex mathematics to describe them if we choose. Uh, however, very simple mathematical principles uh, are what govern the the orbits of planets around the sun, and they're what go- govern the proportions of the human body. And those patterns and those mathematics appear to take into account all of the natural possibilities that you're talking about. So a stock market is a beautiful example of this. Uh, Economists acknowledge that the stock market is essentially a, a mirror of investor psychology, of mass investor psychology. And because the investors are humans, we are part of nature, so the stock market follows natural cycles that are also governed by very simple patterns of of mathematics. And it is that understanding uh, that led to one of the most successful stock market prediction tools in in history, based on the works uh, of a naturalist early in the 20th century. His name was R. N. Eliot. And R. N. Eliot recognized the natural patterns of economics in the 1980s. A man named Robert Prechter Applied that to the stock market and came up with what is now called the Elliott Wave Theory, and, and it is one of the most successful market prediction tools. Taking into account the mathematics itself, takes into account all possibilities of human choice, and that opens the door to a, a whole conversation about free will and and uh, and how our choices affect our reality. But that's that's again a long answer to a short question. The math incorporates all of the possibilities of of linearity as well.
0: Uh Uh-huh, okay. If
1: that that makes (laughs) makes sense.
0: Well, I'm still not 100% clear on the linearity component in looking at fractals and cycles.
1: Well, the the, the linearity is, um, it's only linear until we step back and look at the big picture. And what we find is the linearity itself repeats. Uh, again and again as fractal cycles. It's, it's only History, for example, only appears linear if we're looking at 5,000 years of history, and that's what's being taught right. uh, in okay. our classrooms. Today. Okay. But, but the archaeology now is revealing... Uh, I've just had the opportunity, we just had a group in Peru in June, uh, and when the group went home, I had the opportunity to visit and document what is now the the oldest archaeological site, Tammy, in all of the Americas, older than anything in the, the Mayan tradition and the Aztec. It's upsetting uh, the history books because it is dated 1,500 years before this kind of an advanced civilization should even exist in the Americas, according to traditional uh, traditional wisdom. And interestingly enough, this uh, this archaeological site uh, it's a 66 acre site. Uh, five massive pyramids surrounding a great central, sunken, circular complex. Uh, It's dated right at 5,000 years. It's at the end of the last 5,000-year cycle and the beginning of of the current 5,000-year cycle uh, that so many indigenous traditions are are talking about. And it's, it's a beautiful example of we have a linear view of civilization until we step back and look at the big picture and see that there was another rise and another fall that happened before that, that creates the cycle.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm with you now. So it's a question of taking a far enough view from far enough away to get a big picture, if you will. And it, it,
1: it is, you know, and, and you know one of the things visually when I share this information with audiences all over the world, and uh, as you know, a lot of it's done through translators, and I never really know <laughs> how well the translations come across, but I know the pictures. And charts and graphs and illustrations really tell a lot of the story. So when we talk about the history of the Earth and changes upon the Earth, physical changes upon the Earth, one of the ways that we've been able to convey that to large general audiences, non-scientific audiences, is by sharing with them the images of, of data collected from the Earth, and on the poles of the Earth, the ice caps of Antarctica and, and Greenland, the North and the South Poles, those areas, represent uh, essentially a library of uh, locked into the ice of the history of the Earth. Every year, a new layer of ice is deposited on the North and the South Pole. In that layer, we have dust particles. From the atmosphere, little bubbles of the atmosphere, little air bubbles that contain carbon dioxide and oxygen, pollen grains that are floating in the atmosphere during that year, and all of that information is locked into that layer of ice. So in 1999, scientists of the Earth, recognizing that global warming was destroying the ice, said, you know, we better capture as much of this data as we can. And they drilled to the bottom of the thickest ice core Uh, or the thickest ice layer in Antarctica. It's an area called Vostok Lake, V-O-S-T-O-K, if people want to Google this. And even the scientists were amazed, Tammy. They captured 480,000 layers of ice, each layer representing one year of the history of the Earth. So all of a sudden now we had 480,000 years uh, of Earth's history where we can tell how much sunlight, Uh, penetrated the earth, how strong the magnetic fields were, were the temperatures high or low, were the sea levels high or low. And we could compare today with those 480,000 years. And when we look at those charts, what we see, the cycles are so obvious, the rhythmic rise and fall of the sea levels, the rise and fall of the temperatures, both in the North and South Pole, Uh, the rise and fall of the the energy from the sun that reaches the surface of the earth, of the magnetic fields of the earth. And, and when our audiences see graphically that vast span of time, and they see that if we step back far enough, what we see is the earth goes through these rhythmic changes on a periodic basis. And then we overlay a chart of civilization in human history on to this rise and fall. And what we see is that the changes in the earth actually uh, uh, correlate to the rise and fall of great civilizations to triggers for war and peace uh, as resources uh, become abundant or resources dwindle and the competition for the resources. And it it really helps to convey this idea that we live uh, in a cyclic world, at least on our planet, and that our civilization is in a critical phase Of a cycle that we can see if we step back far enough and and look at the, the message of history, and then it opens the question: What can we learn from those cycles and those civilizations of the past that may benefit us today? What did they know that we've forgotten? What mistakes did they make that we can learn from? And all of that, I believe, is is what we are now gleaning from this relatively new understanding of Earth in our lives in terms of cycles and, and the fractal nature of cycles. If we understand the little patterns of the past and we know where to look in the past, it gives us this insight into uh, what we can realistically expect and choices that we have uh, before us in our lives today.
0: Okay. Well, let's go directly into exploring. You mentioned the period between 1980 and 2016 as being sure. this period that we're in right now. Where in history, what other great cycles brought us to a similar, fractally resonant period of historic time to the time that we're in now?
1: Well, uh, this, is, uh, this is interesting. It's an interesting question. And I'm, I'm going to begin just by saying that mainstream science in journals like Nature, very prestigious journals like Nature, now published the, the peer-reviewed articles telling us, number one, that Earth is directly influenced by a powerful source of energy at the center of our Milky Way galaxy, the the, the magnetic fields at the center of our Milky Way. So that is now accepted uh, scientific fact that Earth is influenced by an invisible f- field of energy, a magnetic field at the center of the Milky Way, and number two, that our location in the heavens, where we are in the orbit around the Milky Way, determines how much we are influenced when when we're when our orbit brings us closer to the center of the Milky Way, we have greater influence, and w- when the elliptical orbit takes us further away, we have less influence.
0: No, I'm sorry, I'm just I'm not following you, Greg. Influence? What do you mean, greater or less influence? That Earth
1: Earth uh, life on Earth is influenced by these powerful fields of energy. Uh, they're specifically magnetic fields that emanate from the center of the Milky Way galaxy. So the, the, the technical journals are actually linking what's called biodiversity and the rise and fall of life on Earth uh, to how close or how far away we are from these fields, and that is determined by where we are in the orbit uh, around this source of energy at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And what's so interesting is that scientists now have, have determined as well that it is cyclic, that uh, our location this our change in location in the heavens and how we're affected by these fields is is cyclic there's a rhythm that they've been able to determine mathematically and this was only in the uh, the early 2000s 2004 2006 is when these these articles were published so they're telling us there's a field of energy that the influences is number 1 number 2 Where we are in the heavens determines how we're influenced, and that changes on a cyclic or a rhythmic basis. So the reason I'm beginning to answer the question like this is because modern science has only arrived at this understanding. But somehow, many ancient cultures knew about this long before we had satellites, GPS, computers, and things like that to to tell them. And among those cultures... Were the Mesoamerican cultures uh, the, through the desert Southwest, down through Mexico, the Yucatan, and down into what is now called the the uh, Andean region of uh, uh, of South America—Bolivia, Peru, Chile—in uh, those areas, um, these cultures r- developed systems of timekeeping that actually predicted when these cycles would occur, and the, the the tradition that the Western mind relates to the best uh, is the Mayan tradition because they use numbers and cycles of numbers that make sense to us. Uh, many of the other traditions used uh, earth-based signs. They said uh, in the desert southwest, for example, they said when a white buffalo you know, appears in the plains of North America, it will be time for a cycle or, or when the crops don't grow in their season and the rain stops, it'll be time for a cycle. And scientists can't do much with that, but but the Mayan traditions actually attach numbers that make sense to us today, numbers that are linked to rare astronomical events like uh, eclipses and solstices and things like that that we can actually verify with our computers. So uh, the Mayan culture is the one that's kind of on our radar today. It's in our sights because the Mayans so accurately predicted a 5,000-year cycle that began with, began with a rare astronomical event in the year 3114 B.C., that's the biblical era, 5,000 years ago. Uh, and that cycle ends, that 5,125-year cycle ends with the winter solstice of uh, December twenty first, 2012 A.D., and this is the the date that so many people and so much of the media have really latched on to, that that is the cycle that the Mayan timekeepers identified. What the mathematicians tell us is that the effects of that cycle, actually we began to feel the greater effects right around the year 1980, and it lasts for 36 years through the year 2016, uh, we're in 2010 now telling us that we're over halfway through and well into the changes that uh, that can be expected to accompany that, that kind of a cycle.
0: So, Greg, are you saying that 5,000 years ago there was something happening on Earth that we need to pay attention to because there was a transition then that can help us go through this transition now?
1: I think so. So, if we consider the cyclic nature of... Uh, of our world, of Earth, of orbits. Earth's orbits in the heaven, uh, in the heavens, and and the influence of magnetic fields from the center of our Milky Way. The uh, magnetic fields from uh, from our own sun and things like that. Uh, if we consider all of those things, then what we know is is the 2012 window that we're looking at today has happened before. This isn't the first 2012, and from that perspective if we know where to look in the past uh... we can see physically from things like the ice cores that we mentioned a few moments ago we can see really what kinds of changes happen to the earth Were the temperatures then like they are now or, or are we living an anomaly in in terms of the temperatures of the earth or you know the the sea levels are rising now and the islands are disappearing is that really unusual uh... for where we are in the cycle right now we can determine those things and we can also determine what it meant to people through the archaeological record through civilizations what how did people respond what was the cultural response what was the social response uh, and the bottom line just to get there very quickly is that the changes that we're seeing on earth right now if we compare them to the last fifty years has earth gone through a big change absolutely uh, through the last 100, 150, 200 years, absolutely, Earth has gone through a lot of change. When we look at the big picture, is the change anomalous for where we are in our cycle? Absolutely not. These are the changes that we expect when we go through the cycles that we're going through right now. So, And this is, I think, the value of looking in into the past, is if we understand that uh, as So many indigenous traditions have been telling us for so long, they were saying, get ready, we're going to go through some big changes. It's not the end of the world. It's the end of of a way of living in the world based on the world that has been and the opportunity to develop new ways of of living in the world now that the world is changing. So I think there is a a value in looking at the, the cycles in the history of the past uh, and learning from the mistakes if there there were any that were made in the past, so that we can avoid those mistakes today
0: so what i 'm uh, interested in is what do we know about what was happening five thousand years ago that 's relevant for our situation now
1: well this is this is where the archaeological sites I think are fascinating and, and the ice uh, the, the history in the ice is fascinating so let let 's begin with the physical changes on the earth we 're hearing so much about Uh, The the Earth changes. Many people suggest the Earth is broken, uh, that something has gone horribly awry. Uh, And I can see where they would feel that way because the Earth is very, very different now than it was 100, 150, 200 years ago. When we look at the ice cores from Antarctica, for example, what we see is that the changes that we've all experienced uh, in the last 20 to 50 years Those changes have brought us precisely into the range of where we always are when we reach this point in the 5,000-year cycle. The temperatures of the Earth always increase, one to two degrees Celsius, and the ice melts on the poles to some degree, and that melting ice causes an increase in the sea levels. That changes the ocean currents. That changes the climate. That changes the weather patterns. Those things, uh, and we can see in the charts, we can see in the graphs, the data, the physical data, uh, that where we are now, the energy from the sun reaching the earth right now is equivalent to the energy of the sun reaching the earth 5,000 years ago. And then if we look further, it's also where it was 10,000 years ago, two cycles, two 5,000 year cycles in the past. So what we can say is that, that the, the physical changes bring us into an alignment of where it appears that we we are when we reach this point in the cycle, at least for the last two cycles.
0: Okay, let me just um, interrupt you for one second here, Greg, sure. to ask a question because I think most people think that the increase in temperature is related to the human impact from yeah. carbon dioxide emissions, and you know, sure. and of course that wouldn't have been true five thousand or ten thousand years ago well, in the same way. This
1: is where we have to be really careful because it's easy to skew data, and I think we all know that we can make data look. You know, you can take a sample of data and make it look almost any way you, you want to make it look. If if we look at carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere uh, for the last 50 years, the last 100 years, the last 200 years, the last 500 years, it's easy to see that increase because it has because of, of industry and correlate that with the temperature of the changes on the Earth. If, however, you step back and you look at the big picture what we find is that earth warmed 5000 years ago and we didn't have the carbon dioxide it, and the energy from the sun uh uh is what is believed to be responsible for that it's called a solar driven model uh and then if we go back another 5000 years 10000 years ago we see the same thing uh, exactly the same thing happening it's not approximate it's uh, when we look at the at the charts from antarctica for example uh and the greenland ice cores i mean it it's almost exact So do we need to clean up the way we live on this planet? Absolutely. Do we need to find green, sustainable ways of of living our lives? Absolutely. And I am completely on board with that. Have we broken the earth? Probably not. Have we contributed to the amount of carbon dioxide in, in the air? Absolutely. We've contributed to it. Did our contribution trigger global warming? Uh, the jury's out on that, but from what I see, the evidence suggests that we did not trigger the global warming. So you can see where it can become very political, uh, and you can take that data and, and we can use it, you know, in, in a lot of different ways. But for for me, it goes even beyond this because now we look at the human component: what happened to people when they went through the changes. Five thousand years ago, and what we find is some of the great civilizations, like like the one in South America, it collapsed right at that five thousand year mark. And now there are archaeological sites that are being dated at ten thousand years, eight thousand BC, ten thousand years ago. This completely messes up the the timeline and the chronology in in most history books. But on, on the border between India and Pakistan, for example. Uh, Evidence of of advanced civilizations, hot and cold, running water, closed sewage systems. They're now being dated right around 8,000 B.C. That's two cycles ago. Uh, The same thing we find in in Egypt. New evidence of advanced civilizations that are are at that 10,000-year mark and possibly older in Egypt and also in, uh, in Bolivia. Now, the dates are controversial, absolutely, because they upset the conventional wisdom but the anomalous evidence is becoming so abundant that we have to ask ourselves, do we need a new model of our history? And it causes problems from uh, the, the historic perspective. Uh, for me, those problems are solved when we consider cycles of time. When we study 5,000 years of civilization and we say civilization began 5,000 years ago, what we really mean is that this cycle of civilization began 5,000 years ago, and the question is, what happened before that? And part of, I think, what we're all learning right now, we're redefining our relationship to the world. And I think many of your authors uh, are contributing to that, but people like Bruce Lipton, helping us to to redefine our relationship to the cells of our bodies and and to the role between emotion, the power of human emotion, and, and how it triggers changes in our bodies. Um, we're redefining the history and how long we've been on this planet. We're redefining our relationship to the earth uh, and possibly beyond. And I think all of this is its a healthy reality check, uh, a re-examination of our, our role and our relationship to the world. And it all this is where context is so important. It all is happening at the end of this 5,000-year cycle when changes in the world have triggered a series of crises that we must solve to survive. And the only way to solve the crises is to think differently about ourselves and our relationship to one another, our relationship to the earth. And, uh, and I think this is the, the, the reality check, if you will, that we're experiencing now Uh, And what I find so fascinating is when I talk to people like my mom. I talk to my mom about this all the time. And from her perspective, in her years on this earth, mom says it looks like the world's just falling apart at the seams. And it's easy to see that until we look closely at what is breaking down. And what we find is the only things that are really breaking down are the things that are no longer sustainable. And this appears to be a hallmark of our time in history our time in this cycle when the world changes the systems that we've put in place to live our lives are strained by the change and the ones that are not sustainable seem to show up pretty quickly they break down very quickly and the, and the ones that are are sustainable seem to hold up pretty well in the presence of the changes and i think that's what we're witnessing in the world now a breakdown of an economic system that's not sustainable of uh, a system of, of providing uh, electricity to a planet and fueling a planet by burning fossil fuels, finite source of fuels that actually uh, destroy the very atmosphere of the planet that, that we love. So I, I think when we look closely, we see the only things that are really breaking down are the things that are not sustainable, and then our choice becomes one of whether or not we can honor the things of the past that worked so well. They got us to where we are today and let those things go and accept new sustainable ways of living or if if we fight to try to hang on to old unsustainable ways of life. And, and we're still making that choice today.
0: So when we look back 5,000 years or 10,000 years, can we see that there were certain successes in the way that people dealt with this period of time and if so what were those successes
1: yeah absolutely because because people lived through those changes and they wrote to us it's it's fascinating to me that the biblical era for example 3000 bc 5000 years ago this is the time when the core of so many of our most cherished spiritual traditions developed during the time of the great change of a cycle 5000 years ago where people looked within uh, themselves to, to try to find answers or, or find a mechanism to deal with the changes in their, their outer world. We know that people lived through the changes because they, they wrote to us uh, in the language of their day and shared with us what they experienced. Uh, and, and I'm just paraphrasing, but they said, you're going to need this when you go through the changes in, in your time. Uh, the Hopi are a beautiful example of this. The Hopi uh, of the American Desert Southwest uh, have a, uh, a beautiful pictograph that was believed to have been created at, right at the, at the end of the last cycle and the changes that the people went through then as a map of both a way of being as well as what we could expect as we go through the next cycle. And the the map, uh, I talk about this in the book Fractal Time, the map is two parallel paths representing two different ways of, of living in the world. And what the oral tradition that goes with this map states that humans can choose either one of the two paths to live on. One path represents comfort, greed, and profit. And the other one is love, strength, and compassion. And different tellings that varies, you know, those exact words vary from one to another, but, but the general idea is that one is more about cooperation and the other is more about competition. And what the Hopi say is that as we go through this cycle, people can move back and forth between the two paths. They can try comfort, greed, and profit, or they can try love, strength, and, and balance. It's love, strength, and balance. That's the, the lower path. But they say that there will be a, a point and they identified this point to the United Nations in 1998. They said in 1998 we reached a point where it would become very difficult to to move back and forth between the two paths that we must choose. One path or the other to carry us through the the great change. And when we look closely at the pictographs it's interesting. One path, the path of comfort, greed and profit becomes very rough, very jagged and ends abruptly and there are no humans there. And the other path is a smoother, more level path. It shows abundant food uh, represented as as stalks of corn that are growing. It shows humans living to an advanced age, uh, kind of hunched over with a cane, and uh, says that people will live long and abundant lives if they follow the path of beauty and strength and balance. So that's just an example of, of one indigenous people that not only experienced but they communicated in an eloquent and simple way both a, a map of what we could expect as well as a way of being that would help us navigate the changes. And we, we find similar teachings throughout the world. Tammy, in the Andes, Bolivia and Peru, I spend a lot of time in the high elevation communities in South America, certainly in, in Tibet. I've been there five times, 12 monasteries and two nunneries over 26 days and the the tradition through these monasteries and nunneries, when we see the chanting and the the mudras and the mantras that that are, are being practiced for, you know, 12 and 16 hours a day, my question was why? Why do you do these things? And they've told us that they do these things to create a feeling in their bodies. And the feeling is their interface with the world around them that helps them deal with changes in the outer world. And this is a teaching that it's been preserved there for you know at least 2,000 years. So we find evidence in the temple walls of Egypt, maps of, of the sky, showing when Earth will go through very specific changes in ways that we didn't know until the 20th century. And, and how the knowledge got there, who knew uh, you know, two, three, 4,000 years ago that these changes were there, that, that's a whole conversation we could have. But it appears to be like the great secret that everybody knows except us, and us being the science based technologically oriented left brain world that has evolved since uh, for three hundred years since the dawning of science and the time of Isaac Newton about three hundred years ago. so it's it's interesting to see how the scientific understandings have validated many of the ancient principles but how they've also negated things that science has yet to embrace and the very principles that the ancient traditions identified and uh, and have preserved in in their way of, uh, of sharing that kind of information.
0: If I'm understanding you correctly, Greg, it sounds like the entire atmosphere, the entire Milky Way, that what's happening in this larger galactic theater, if you will, is having this effect on these cycles, these large cycles of change here on planet Earth. And you alluded to a source of energy that's at the center of the galaxy, that when this energy from the center of the galaxy, I think you said, has its magnetic impact directly on the Earth, that that's what brings on this Type of dramatic shift period, like what we're in now, is that correct?
1: Well, you covered three different topics. The answer is yes, and maybe to help clarify that a little bit, it's it's fascinating me if our if our listeners can imagine in the whiteboard of their minds the the image of the Milky Way galaxy. There's a what the ancients called the Great Central Sun, at the the source of energy at the center of the Milky Way, and then countless numbers of solar systems orbiting around the Milky Way, just, just the way we are in our solar system. And it's fascinating the NASA images of the magnetic field that emanates from the Milky Way. It, it's not a solid field, Tammy. It has what are called magnetic filaments. It's like tentacles of, of magnetic energy that, uh, that are moving uh, through these huge expanses of space. And if, if you can imagine, if our listeners can imagine, when when our orbit around that source of energy, it's not a perfectly circular orbit. It's called an ellipse. And so that means there's sometimes an ellipse where we're close to the center, and when we're way out on the edges, we're further away. So where we are in the orbit is what triggers the changes. And, and by the way, the changes are not only on Earth. Every planet in our solar system now is being documented, is going through, uh, changes that at least astronomers haven't seen since they've been documenting the planets. Uh, Mars has undergone global warming. Um, magnetic fields uh, are shifting radically in the Uranus and Neptune, for example. These are documented in, in the technical journals. It, so it's not just Earth. And what it tells us is we're part of a big system that's undergoing a, a rhythmic or a cyclic change. Uh, our ancestors told us about this change in their language, and that science is only beginning to understand it in the language that we trust, in this technological language where we can assign measurements and numbers to the change. But our indigenous ancestors have been preparing and and suggesting, and their prophecies and predictions have been saying that we would go through a change. But the, the beauty of this, Tammy, what to me brings it all back home to the message of sounds true and my message uh, that I've shared with the, for the bulk of my adult life, it, the changes are the context, but the question is, what does it mean to us in our lives? And one of the fascinating things I've found is that of all, I have not studied every single indigenous tradition on the planet. I have to say that clearly. What I also am going to say is that every indigenous tradition I have studied has been very clear. They cannot predict the outcome for this pivotal cycle of time and where we are right now, because they say we're choosing it right now as we live it. And they offer two different scenarios. Some of the scenarios are very dark and very frightening. Some of them are very joyous and very uplifting. Uh, Unfortunately, the media, mainstream media, Hollywood, a lot of the very authoritative cable channels creating documentaries have focused on the dark uh, and the frightening possibilities. But the indigenous traditions are, are very clear. They say that we're choosing right now. They cannot, tell, nor could the prophets, Nostradamus, Edgar Cayce, Gene Dixon, uh, none of them. The, the Tibetan prophecies, the Hopi prophecies, all of them say that, that the outcome essentially is unknown. All they can show us are the possibilities and that we must choose and I think the first step is knowing that we have a choice. And that's why I'm excited to to be able to share in this podcast series and talking about how we make that choice and, and what choices uh, we can make. How, is it enough to speak the words of choice? Or is there a way that we claim that choice in our hearts? And is there a language of choice? that our indigenous ancestors understood that we're only beginning to understand in the language of science, and that these are all things we'll explore more deeply as we go through our series.
0: Okay, just a, a couple more questions here, Greg, that I have to ask you. Now, I'm sure. so curious when you talk about this energy that's at the center of the galaxy, and you, you yeah, mentioned how yeah. an indigenous person might have referred to it as a, as a type of sun. What What is this energy at the center of the galaxy that's having well, such um, a huge know, I mean, impact on us? I'm so glad us. you asked <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'm so glad you asked because it um i mean this is a beautiful story unto itself when i was in school back in the back in the 60s and when i was in the industry in the corporations in the 70s and 80s well, i was taught and the belief at that time was that the the powerful source of energy at the center of our milky way galaxy uh, it was called a black hole and a, as we find in the center of, of other galaxies and our astronomers know this so they believed that this black hole was, was a powerful source of energy, but it never made sense to me because a black hole kind of sucks everything away. I wouldn't think of that as, a, as a, an emanating or radiating source of energy. Well, it was only in the late 90s uh, that the Hubble Space Telescope, one of the amazing things that the Hubble Space Telescope discovered... Because it could see the Hubble telescope can see things from its vantage point in space that we cannot see with the naked eye or with telescopes from here on Earth. So as the Hubble telescope was pointed toward the center of the Milky Way, it could see through the clouds of dust and gas. And what Hubble revealed is that uh, next to the black hole that we find in the center of our Milky Way is a massive star uh, the brightest star known to exist in all of the Milky Way, uh, and the two are, are sort of situated, they're parked at the center of our Milky Way side by side, uh, a, a black hole and and, a, and this beautiful huge star that somehow together uh, are the source of this powerful magnetic field that emanates and radiates uh, throughout the Milky Way and, and beyond. And because it, it does so through these tentacles or these filaments uh... you can imagine in uh, again the whiteboard of your mind it's not a solid field but there are are like rays if you want to think of them as as a ray, R-A-Y, rays of uh, of these magnetic fields in space then it begins to be obvious why we would sometimes be affected more and sometimes affected less if it was a solid field it wouldn't make any sense but because they are rays of energy, and we pass through these rays uh, at predictable times because of our orbit. And this is what our ancestors somehow knew. And they even called it the Great Central Sun. You know, it never made sense to me to call the center of the Milky Way a Great Sun if it was a black hole. But but our indigenous ancestors, uh, the, the Dogon of Africa, for example, uh, in the Egyptian traditions, the Hopi talk about the Great Central Sun, So somehow they must have known that there was more than a black hole that that was there at the center of the Milky Way.
0: Now, you mentioned this very interesting thing, which is not just the spoken language of choice or the mental language of choice, but the feeling experience Mm. of choice and how important that is at this time. And I know you call 2012 a choice point. So what is that, the feeling that we're choosing.
1: Well, Tammy, I think this uh, this is where 5000 years of spiritual history finds the marriage with the best science of today and the application of allowing us to tip the scales of life and balance one way or another at this time of great change, this pivotal moment of change in our lives because the great secret what is called the great secret that was held in so many of the the indigenous and the spiritual traditions of our past it is a secret of an inner experience, an inner way of being, whether we're talking about the monks and the nuns of India and Tibet chanting and doing all the things you know that they do to create the feelings in their bodies, or we're talking about the uh, the people of the Andes, the high Andes, and the, and their traditions, or the, the dancing of uh, the natives in Africa, uh, as different as those seem to be from one another, all of them serve to create a feeling in the human body. And what our own science now is telling us is that feeling, focused primarily in the heart, that the human heart is the strongest generator, of electrical fields and the strongest generator of magnetic fields in the human body. Stronger than the brain. Uh, the heart now has been documented as, as being as much as a 100 times stronger electrically than the brain, and the heart is documented as being about 5,000 times stronger magnetically than the human brain. So what we can say is when we feel the right kind of feeling, a certain kind of feeling in our hearts, we're actually generating a powerful field of electrical and magnetic energy that extends beyond our heart, beyond our body, into the world around us. And this is where the, the science of, of quantum physics, the science of quantum biology, the science of life systems all comes together into a new wisdom that tells us beyond any reasonable doubt, Tammy, that the humans of the earth have the ability to influence the very fields of the earth that connect all life, number one, and number two, these are the very fields that are influenced by the change at the end of the cycle. So if we follow the traditions of our ancient and some of our most cherished spiritual traditions, they say, if we work together to live a certain way in our lives, to create a certain feeling in our bodies, and we call that feeling care and compassion uh, a gratitude, appreciation, if we do that as individuals, we do that in our families, we do that in our communities, that somehow it makes the changes that come at the end of a cycle easier. This is the language of, of the ancient traditions. And now our own science is showing us that when we come together as families and communities, heart-centered choices, a heart-centered way of living uh, is more than simply a, a, a New Age metaphor and it's more than wishful thinking, but heart-centered living literally, literally, physically influences our physical environment, and it influences the physical changes in the earth uh, that we undergo at the end of, of these great cycles. And for me, it it brings... It, that's a huge statement to make, and, and for me, it brings a continuity, if you will, to 5,000 years of our history. All of a sudden, our ancestors that we think are ancient and primitive, all of a sudden we recognize they knew something that really behooves us to understand today and they did their very best in the language of their time to share this inner experience that we're only now beginning to understand and document through the language of our time. Uh, And we put all that together. I think it's no accident that all of it is happening now. now. Now we look at the context. Here we are At the end of this rare 5,000-year cycle, when Earth undergoes the changes that are predictable for this point in the cycle, but it's only because the world is changing that we're seeking new understandings of ourselves and our relationship to the Earth, and those understandings are revealing that we're part of the change and that we have the ability to influence the outcome. Uh, in in positive life-affirming ways, and I, I can't think of a more beautiful message uh, to be able to share with with the people of this world. Is that for 5,000 years, their ancestors have worked, and we've all worked together to preserve a message that maybe now we're only beginning to understand.
0: Wonderful. I've been speaking with Greg Braden, and he will be hosting a three-part online event series where he'll be going into quite a bit of detail on the subject of Exploring Fractal Time, Choice Point 2012. And that will be beginning at SoundsTrue.com on November 3rd and run for three consecutive weeks. Exploring Fractal Time, Choice Point 2012 with Greg Braden. Greg Braden is also the creator of many audio programs with Sounds True, including The Lost Mode of Prayer, the Isaiah Effect and Beyond Zero Point. And he's also a contributor to a Sounds True published anthology called The Mystery of 2012. Greg, it's always great to talk to you. I always learn so many things. Thank you so much. Well, Tammy, I want
1: to thank you for being such a gracious host and for really good questions that allowed me to share with this audience things I rarely get to share with an audio audience. So thank you. Uh, thank you very, very much.
0: SoundsTrue.com. Many voices. One Journey.